0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open up to the book of Acts? We are working through Acts verse by verse study. We're in chapter two, and we're in the middle of Peter's sermon. And so I've entitled the sermon, Peter's, uh, this little three part series, in a sense, three weeks in Peter's sermon, as Peter's powerful sermon. This morning we're in part two, Acts chapter two, verses 22 through 36. And so why don't we just dive right into our time here, starting at verse 22. Peter, kind of getting worked up in his message here, says this Men of Israel, hear these words. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over every breath, that you're sovereign over our worst day and our best day, over the darkness and over the dawn. We're grateful that we could be in your word this morning, just being encouraged by this incredible, powerful sermon of Peter at Pentecost. And while he's preaching to the house of Israel there in that context, we know that these timeless truths still encourage us, challenge us, remind us of your sovereignty, of your love, of your son Jesus Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. I pray that you would be with us here in this time together of worship through the word and that you would continue to fill us with your truth and with great hope in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're talking about Peter's first sermon, and I've been talking to you a little bit about preaching and how there are some preachers, particularly some youth pastors that I've personally talked to who are doing series on SpongeBob and on scary stories of the Bible and playing Survivor. And the reason that some churches are kind of lending themselves into foregoing good, solid preaching, and they're moving into just trying to have some type of shock factor is because they've really lost confidence In the Word of God. In his book, As One Without Authority, Fred Craddock makes the assumption that traditional preaching is no longer effective to reach our culture today. He believes that preaching with boldness is driving people away from churches because it is too authoritarian and it is not sensitive enough to the listener to help him with his present situation. Here's what Craddock writes in that book, quote, it is generally recognized that many blows struck against the pulpit come not because of its peculiar faults, but because it is a part of a traditional and entrenched institution. And all such institutions, religious, political, or otherwise, are being called into question, close quote. In other words, what this author, this liberal author, if I could say, who wants to kind of do away with preaching, what he's saying here in this quote is that we live in a culture where people question every authority. And so we got to be sensitive to that. And we can't really come at the culture or at people in our churches with authority from the pulpit because it might just turn them off. And so, what we got to do is kind of read the audience, read the culture, and just give them what they want and package it in a way that they can more easily receive it. And so, Craddock offers a suggestion that the preacher should change the force of his words because preaching with authority, get this, has been evaluated by psychologists, therapists, communication therapists and even some preachers themselves. And it is evident that change is needed. Craddock wants to be sensitive to the culture and therefore critiques traditional preaching, which uses propositions, logical sequence, and outlines in favor for a more fluid conversational tone. And this way of thinking runs away from speaking with authority and runs to telling stories and speaking conversationally. People are used to kind of hearing pastors just get up and let me just talk to you about my life and let me talk to you about what my week was like and let me just tell you a lot of funny stories that happened in my family and maybe let me share, you know, something about some celebrity, something that they did or said, or maybe I'll give you a verse or two from the Bible and that's about it. Well, listen, we all understand this morning that the preacher is not the ultimate authority, but God's word is. And God has given us his word as an authority. And in his word, he tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word. So God's telling us, look, don't change with the culture, don't change with the times, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort with complete patience and teaching. Well, I don't know about you, but this morning I'm going to take my cues from preaching from the word of God and not from psychologists and communication therapists who tell us how to get it done today. The Bible says to preach And this is the word caruso in the original language, which literally means to make a public declaration. It means to proclaim aloud. A preacher is to be a herald of the truth. He is not to be soft-spoken. He is not to be shying away from difficult issues. A preacher's job is to deliver the goods, and a preacher's job is to deliver what was cooked in the kitchen. You know what I'm saying? John MacArthur says, quote, the preacher is not a chef. He is a waiter. God doesn't want you to make the meal. He just wants you to deliver it to the table without messing it up. That's all. That's my job, right? I'm a broker of the truth, and I'm to bring you the word of God day in, day out with authority as the Bible proclaims. I love the idea, of, again, of a preacher not messing with the food. I mean, can you imagine a waiter bringing the food out to the table, and there's some gourmet chef in the back who spent all this time preparing the food just right, and then as he brings it out, he's kind of tinkering with it, and adding a little salt, and adding a few other spices. Kind of reminds me of that movie Ratatouille a little bit. All right, if you're a rat, I guess you can do that, but can you imagine bringing out that and tinkering with it? That's not our job. Our job is to deliver the goods as they were prepared in the kitchen. I, I would also say that a preacher is like a mailman. I mean, what if your mailman was keeping all of your mail to himself? Instead of delivering it to your house, he was storing up your mail in his garage or in his attic. Well, that wouldn't be a very good mailman, right? You would say, that's terrible. I need to be receiving my mail. I need to be connected with the people and the businesses that I'm corresponding with so that I can respond appropriately. And just like you need your mailman to deliver the mail, you need your pastor to deliver the book. You need your pastor to preach the word. You need a preacher to bring God's word to bear on your life day in and day out. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, also believes what is missing in good preaching today is authority. He writes, quote, as we examine the current state of preaching and listen to many contemporary preachers describe their view of the task of preaching, the quick diagnosis is that something is missing. Something is not there that ought to be there and that something missing is the one thing most essential, Authority. That's what Moeller writes, and I agree with that. I mean, wasn't that exactly what Jesus' teaching was characterized by? Matthew 7, 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. And this passage in Matthew is an indictment of the absence of authority, which was common in the teaching from the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus preached sermons full of power and full of conviction, not full of possibilities and capitulations to the conversations of the common experiences of the day. His truth and his teaching was deducted from the word of God. Right? He, he brought the book, he taught from the Old Testament scriptures and then gave us new revelation himself. Uh, Moeller adds to his insight uh, uh, and summary of preaching, quote, the one thing missing is the one thing most essential. He talked about authority, right? And then in this quote, he says, the one thing missing is the one thing most essential. There are question marks where there should be explanation points. There is hesitancy where there should be boldness. There is advice where there should be teaching. There are ideas where there should be doctrine. There are impressions where there should be imperatives. And so again, we get what's being said here is that preachers need to preach the Bible with conviction and with authority. And I'll be the first to say a hearty amen to that. And that's why I love the definition of expository, preacher, uh, expository preaching that I offered to you last week by Stephen F. Ulford, he writes this, quote, expository preaching is the spirit-empowered explanation and proclamation of the text of God's word with due regard to the historical, contextual, grammatical, and doctrinal significance of a given passage with the specific object of invoking a Christ-transforming response, close quote. And so again, it is necessary for expository preaching to start with And to end with the Bible. That's what God's called us to do. To explain the text. And to exhort you to follow the text. And that's exactly what Peter is modeling for us in Acts chapter 2. It's this kind of preaching. It's starting with the text, it's preaching the text, and it's calling his listeners to respond to the Word of God. And that's why we're taking some time to look at Peter's sermon in three chunks this morning, because it was the first Christian sermon ever preached by a Christian. and and like any good sermon, Peter's sermon had three parts. Last week, we looked at the prophecy of Joel, verses 14 to 21. This morning, we're going to look at the preaching of the gospel, verses 22 through 36. And then next week, we're going to look at Peter's plea for repentance in verses 37 through 41. And so this morning, again, we're looking at that second part of his sermon, the preaching of the gospel. And so I've broken down that topic now into three topics of its own. Number one, your first heading for this morning's messages, Peter preached Christ. Peter preached Christ, and your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, simply says, Jesus was a recognizable Messiah. Look at verse 22 with me, if you will. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now just remember, to put this in its context, Peter is addressing all of the Jews who had come to Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost. And there had been a loud rushing wind, and there were divided tongues as of fire that were resting on each one of Christ's disciples in the upper room. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages, just as the Spirit gave them utterance. And a multitude gathered together. They were familiar with this commotion. Maybe they heard the sound. They gather together and they are bewildered because each one of them was hearing the mighty acts of God declared in his own language. And so they began to ask the question, what does this mean? Why are these Galileans, who are not known as linguist experts, now speaking in 16 different languages and dialects, which we can understand, what does this mean? And so Peter stood up, and he lifted his voice, and he began to preach from the scriptures. And first, his first text was last week, he preached from Joel chapter 2. And he said, this is what Joel declared when he said that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, that your sons and your daughters will prophesy, that your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And we looked at that text last week saying that part of that was fulfilled there at Pentecost in the first century, and the rest of that will be fulfilled at some point in the future near the day of the Lord. And so we understand that a lot of that that was in there has a future fulfillment fulfillment that we're still waiting for. And so this prophecy from Joel 2 served both as a warning for the lost and as an encouragement for those who were saved. But even in the midst of judgment, because a lot of that talked about blood and fire and smoke and how the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Again, all that happens before the great and magnificent day of the second coming of the Lord himself. And so it's a day to fear For those who have been disobedient, but it's a day for hope and a day for restoration for those who are walking with Christ. And so at the end of that passage of Joel two, last week, we ended on verse 21. And even in the midst of a context of judgment, he says this, Peter says, quoting Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter what background you're coming from this morning. If you're here this morning, God is calling you to himself. And it doesn't matter how far you've drifted. You can be saved, but you must call upon the name of the Lord. The government won't save you. Your finances won't save you. Um, Essential oils won't save you. Did you know that? But God himself will save you through the power of his gospel. And so we've got to know that on this day, we need to be calling out to the Lord. Our hope has got to be found in him. And so Peter is now moving on from Joel 2 to preach about Christ. Peter preached, as we're now looking at verse 22, he says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter is preaching about Jesus, and he's specifically preaching about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, just to remind you, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was brought up in Nazareth. His ministry headquarters was Capernaum, but Jesus's home is in heaven where you and I will one day be in our father's house where it was prepared for us, many rooms, a place where Jesus says in John 14 that he's preparing for us and will come and take us to himself that where he is, we may be also. But he's preaching here about Jesus as an earthly man being tied to the village of Nazareth. He wants to make sure to emphasize Jesus's humanity. He was born to the Virgin Mary. He, he, he lived there in his majority of his life in, the, in that village of Nazareth where he worked as a carpenter. He knew what it was like to run a business. He knew what it was like to be hungry and to be thirsty and to be tired. He grew up not in luxury, but in a small town that was even despised by some. As Nathaniel had said earlier in John 146, can anything good come out of Nazareth? this village would have kind of been looked down upon, kind of scoffed at as some poorer farming community or blue-collar type community. Can anything good come out? And, of course, Philip said to Nathaniel when he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He said, come and see. Come and see for yourself. And I would say to you this day, if you were to ever scoff the religion of Christianity and say, like, can anything really good come out of Christianity? I mean, I've heard about the Crusades, and I've heard about this and that. Can anything good uh, uh, come out of it? I would say, come and see. Come for yourself and look at the man, Jesus Christ, and let him speak to you through his word. If you just look at Jesus, come and see for yourself. And, and we need to take a moment and just realize that, that Jesus Christ was from Nazareth. That, 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 that kind of puts some skin and some bones on the reality of our savior, because we know he's hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. And then Peter says this in verse 22, he goes on to say that he was attested to you by God. That word attested means that Jesus was appointed by it, that word attested even means that God proclaimed him to us. So we have God, the father proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth was his son. And we see the father doing this three times in the scripture with an audible voice. One was at Jesus's baptism, Matthew 3:17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well-pleased. On the Mount of Transfiguration, we hear God again confirming his son in Mark 9, 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. The night before Jesus was crucified, we hear God's affirmation one more time in John 12, 27 and 28. Now my soul is troubled, Jesus said, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but For this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And so we understand that God the Father attested vocally to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was his son. And he did it not only with a audible voice, but he also did it as verse 22 says, by attributing to him, confirming in him, The mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So God verbally gave approval of the truth that Jesus was his son. And then he did it through these works and these signs and these miracles. The, the word works there, you may know already is the word dunamis, where we get our word dynamite from. It, it can be translated as, as, uh, in the, as the NASB does as the word miracle. This word literally means, quote, to show forth for public recognition. So a work is a miracle It's a mighty act of God that was done publicly and to be seen in, 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 in front of everybody. In other words, Jesus's miracles were not done in secret. His miracles were not just claims that he and his disciples made, but they were done out in the open for all to see. You know the difference between that and a cult and a lot of false religions are that a lot of cults claim a lot of things that nobody saw. Nobody saw the golden tablets that Joseph Smith apparently recorded the Book of Mormon from. Nobody saw and, and different miracles that, that Muhammad claimed as he went up from a horse up into the sky and got the revelation to write, uh, to write, uh, to write the, the, the book for, uh, for, for Islam. You know, so, so the idea here is that these miracles that Jesus did were out in the open. These miracles were for everyone to see. They were a public proclamation that God, the Father, was working in and through his Son. And then we also see the word wonders there. The word wonders actually describes the marveling of what takes place in the mind of the one who witnessed the miracle. And so, uh, for example, after Jesus cast out an unclean spirit, Luke 9, 43 says that all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing. And so as Jesus was doing these works, these dunamis, these mighty works, these miracles, uh, people were marveling at what he was doing. They were just sitting back. I mean, sometimes we just need to sit back and marvel in our hearts at all that God has done. Sometimes we just need to sit back and just marvel at everything that Jesus did for me. We, we need to sit back and marvel at the power of the Holy Spirit coming down at Pentecost as we're studying through this passage and just be amazed. And so God attested to his son through these works. People marveled. And then he also attested to his son, as verse 22 says, through signs The word sign here in the original language means a distinguishing mark. A sign is supposed to point to something. And the signs that Jesus did pointed to the fact that he indeed was the Messiah. Every time Jesus did a miracle, every time that he did something that was beyond normal, it was supposed to point to the fact this must be the son of God. Even when John the Baptist sent his followers after he had been arrested, you remember that time he sent his followers to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered that question this way in Matthew eleven four 4 and 5. He said, go tell John what you see and what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, these are messianic miracles that the Son of Man has performed. So if John is wondering whether I'm the one to come or there's someone else, just tell him what I've been doing. Telling him what I've been doing is attesting to the fact that God did these miracles and these wonders and these signs right there in the midst of everybody through his Son, Jesus Christ. Some of this could even be referring to what happened at Calvary talking about the the signs and the miracles when the sun was darkened and the earth shook and the rocks split apart. Again, these are all things that God did attesting to the fact that they should have known that Jesus was the Messiah. And so that's what Peter's saying is he starts off in his sermon after he covers a little bit about Joel. And how he gets into the meat of his sermon, preaching the gospel. He just said, Hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He, he should be easily recognizable by the fact that the father has attested to him by both his words and by his works. But we also see in verse 23, that Jesus was a rejected Messiah. He was a rejected Messiah, this Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This verse says that Jesus was delivered up. It means that he was handed over. He was given up. The scribes and the Pharisees had Jesus arrested, and they hosted illegal trials with him throughout the night. And the next morning, they delivered him up to Pilate. And this all happened, according to verse 23, this all happened according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, there's something about that that we just need to understand is beautiful, that even though we kind of cringe when we think about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas betrayed Christ and he was taken by the soldiers with their swords and they illegally tried him from throughout the night saying things about him that weren't true and they began to pluck out his beard and spit in his face and move on from there to the crucifixion, something in us is like, man, that's just not right. And and at the same time, this verse is reminding us, well, hold on a second. This all happened according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. That word predetermined means, quote, to be determined ahead of time, close quote. In other words, this was not an accident. This was not a mistake. This was not a response to events that seemed to somehow have gotten out of control. No one derailed God's plan. Not Judas, not the Pharisees, not Pilate, not even the devil. This was God's plan. This was something that was predetermined. It was foreordained. It was in accordance with God's decree. It was God's ultimate desire for Christ to be crucified. And the word predetermined refers to God's sovereign will, to God's design, to God's decree, to God's purpose. And we read in Acts 4:27 and 28, what Peter and John said just after they were released from prison for preaching the gospel, they said, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So Peter's preaching there in Acts 4 as well. That Look, everything that happened with Herod, everything that happened with Pontius Pilate, everything that happened with the Gentile soldiers, everything that happened even with the people of Israel, this all happened according to God's plan, which had been predestined to take place. The cross was a gruesome event, but it was predestined by God. 2 Timothy Chapter one, verse nine says that Jesus saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It was God's purpose before the ages began that God would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die in this way. We're seeing here that the plan of redemption was according to God's purpose and his grace before the ages began. And we also see here, not only is this plan predetermined, but then we read that word foreknowledge there in verse 23, according to the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge means, quote, to have a complete knowledge beforehand it means quote to be predetermined according to god's omniscient wisdom and intention close quote a lot of people argue over the doctrine of the foreknowledge of god particularly if they see more of a understanding that god responds to our choices or whether or not god ordains our choices and so how do we understand foreknowledge and many people understand foreknowledge is passive And they would say, "Well, foreknowledge is just passive. God somehow he looks down the corridors of time, and he looks out into the future, and based on what he sees will happen, then he goes back in the past, and he somehow." Foreordains what's going to happen. And I'm just letting you know that's not the definition of, of the word. It's not how it's used in the Bible. It's never used in a passive sense. In fact, the word foreknowledge is only used about two or three times in the Bible. And in every account, it's connected with this idea of predestination. In fact, turn with me to these other couple of accounts Romans 8 29. Look at Romans 8 29. So we see how foreknowledge is used here. It's used with the word definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And we understand that, right? That Jesus was delivered up according to God's plan. And then we see that word foreknowledge. I'm saying that it's active and intentional, not passive and responsive. And so in Acts, uh, excuse me, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, there's the word foreknowledge again. Let's look at it in its context. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So again, this isn't that God somehow looks down the corridors of time, and he knows what you'll do, and so then he goes back in history, and he predestines you. That's just not what the Bible teaches. It's not the, the, this, the context of what's going on here. He foreknew those because he chose them in him before the foundation of the world, right? We know that's what Ephesians 1 teaches. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Foreknowledge and predestined go hand in hand. In other words, the word predestined helps inform us what foreknowledge means. These words are synonymous. Uh, we, we also see foreknowledge used in a similar context in 1 Peter. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Another place where the word foreknowledge, if you want to get a biblical sense of how is that word used throughout the Bible, Acts 2.23, Romans 8.29, 1 Peter 1.1 and 2, it's all used in this context with the word predestined or with the word elect, with the doctrine of election. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect. So let me just say that the elect are those who were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So Peter's writing to those who are elect exiles in the diaspersion of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he says, um, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be applied to you. I'm, I'm simply just looking at the word foreknowledge. We understand that in first Peter one, two, that, those uh, that Peter's writing to are the elect, verse one, according to the foreknowledge of God, verse two. And so we understand the doctrine of election, which again is that God chose me in him before the foundation of the world. And that we understand that God foreknew because God foreordained. This word foreknowledge, again, synonymous with predestined, synonymous with election. God knows because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. I I would just say it this way. God foreknows because he foreordains, he forelects, and he forechooses us in him. And so the the same word for foreknowledge uh, is used again in 1 Peter. One more time, 1 Peter chapter 1, you're already there, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. So again, speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God didn't look down the quarters of time and somehow develop a relationship with Jesus in the person and then go back and foreknow him. He's always known him in the past. So foreknowledge doesn't necessarily have a a picture of passive future knowledge, but past active knowledge. So back to Acts chapter two, verse 23. So now we have a problem, right? We're like, well, if this is all predetermined and if this foreknowledge is something God determined would happen, he knew it would happen because he predetermined it would happen, then why did they still crucify and kill uh, Jesus in the hands of lawless men? The question would be, are lawless men who crucified Jesus still guilty of their sin if Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? That's the question that we're asking. If this was all predetermined and God knew this would happen because he foreordained it would happen, are those men still guilty for what they did because it seemed like they didn't have a choice? And my answer to that would be, they did have a choice and they chose to act in accordance with their nature. And since their nature was depraved, they consistently act in a sinful way to kill the living lamb of God. Are they guilty for their sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. Just like you and I are always responsible for our sin. You can't say, the devil made me do it. Get this, in this context, you can't say, well, God made me do it. Because if he foreordained the cross and it required the murder of an innocent man by lawless men, then it's okay if I sin because somehow God is going to, you know, he's already ordained that. Listen, that's not a healthy way to think of it. All right, we understand that we're responsible for obeying the revealed will of scripture. And God's word tells us don't murder, don't kill the son of God. And yet somehow God is always at work orchestrating all of the events of humanity and history all for his glory. And so we understand that this had to happen, but we also understand that those that were responsible for it are in clear sin. Uh, Jesus says it this way in Matthew twenty six twenty four: the son of man goes as it is written of him. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross because that's what's been written about me, because that's been predetermined before time began. So the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Of course, that man was probably a reference to Judas, the son of perdition, saying that, look, what Judas did was predetermined was predestined. It was in the scripture. It was going to happen. And yet at the same time, what that man did is wrong. And it would have been better for him not to have been born. Jesus will fulfill the father's plan in redemption, but woe to the man who betrayed Jesus. And so Maybe if you get that in that context, of like, all right, I understand that as far as the crucifixion and resurrection is concerned, that's sovereignly determined by God. But what about everyday events in my life today? In my life today, am I still guilty for my sin? And again, that's where I would say, never say the devil made me do it. Never say God made me do it. You gotta own your own sin, right? Does God at the same time somehow orchestrate all sinful acts for his glory? Yes, he does. That's what he did with the cross. And that's what he does with our lives. God even takes our messes and he cleans them up and somehow redeems them for his purposes. It may be that God wants to teach you a valuable lesson. It may be that God uses your mistakes as an example for someone else to learn from. It may be that God uses your past sin in order to help you love him more and be even more grateful as you see what he's redeemed you from. And so what I'm saying is that God is sovereign over everything, and yet we still have the responsibility to submit to God's will and to follow him. And so what we're reading again in Peter's sermon is that Jesus was a recognizable Messiah because of God's att- attested to that, those truths, that the, the Messiah, Jesus was also a rejected Messiah, still put to death by sinful men. And in our third blank here in this first point of the sermon would be Jesus was a resurrected Messiah. He's a resurrected Messiah. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not Possible for him to be held by it. So we know here that God did indeed raise Jesus from the dead. We're talking about a resurrected Messiah. 1 Corinthians six fourteen, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up in his power. 2 Corinthians four fourteen says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring with you into his presence. And so we know both of these verses, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, both of these verses are reminding us that just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he raises you from the dead as well. If you are in Christ this morning, then you have been resurrected from the grave. And God loosed these pangs of death. He loosed the agonies of death. And it was simply not possible, verse 24, simply not possible for Jesus to be held there. It's just simply not possible. The the grave wasn't strong enough. Death wasn't strong enough to keep Jesus there. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, He would destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. So Jesus went into death, destroyed the one who has power over death. That would be the devil so that death no longer has power over us. You might even remember how Jesus talked about that. Back earlier in his ministry in John 2, 19, when they're standing by the temple and they're examining these large stones that King Herod the Great had built there at the Temple Mount and how, what a beautiful building this is. And look at these incredible stones. And Jesus in that moment said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was, of course, speaking not about that temple, but about the temple of his body that he would be resurrected. God the Father raised him. He would raise himself. The Holy Spirit's involved in the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says, For by a man came death. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And so this is what Peter's doing. He's preaching Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, He's saying he did all the signs that works in the miracles, and he's saying that he has been crucified, and he's saying that he's been raised from the dead. This is what the Jews at Pentecost needed to hear, and this is what you need to hear today. As we've been looking at Acts 2, you know what? You don't have to fully understand all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to agree perfectly on your interpretation of Joel 2 and what's going to be fulfilled now and what's going to be fulfilled in the future. You don't have to fully understand exactly when the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be turned to blood. But you do need to know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's how you're born again. You need to know that. And that's what Peter's harping on when he's pulling stuff from Joel 2. He's pulling it to say, this is now being fulfilled. But what I really want you to know is that Christ came and he lived in Nazareth, and he was the Messiah, and you did put him to death, and he has been raised from the dead, and you must come into a relationship with him. Peter preached Christ. And now I want you to see in our second point, Peter preached Christ from the Old Testament. He preached Christ from the Old Testament. Your next blank, Peter preached from Psalm 16. So that would be literally, you could jot down Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and we see that quoted by Peter here in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, when he says this, for David says concerning him, so remember we're talking about Christ, because we've just talked about how he's been raised from the dead. For David says concerning Jesus, we could say, I saw the Lord always before me After covering one Old Testament text, Joel chapter 2, he's now covering a second Old Testament text, Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we were to go have time to jump, jump back in Psalm 16, we would just know that Psalm 16 is a psalm about how God will not abandon David's soul. But David isn't just talking about himself. He's also in Psalm 16 talking about the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, In the Psalm, Psalm 16, David is taking refuge in the Lord. David takes his delight in the Lord. David places his trust in the Lord. But according to Peter, here in Acts 2, David is not just talking about himself. He says that this Psalm is concerning Jesus Christ. Again, look at verse 25. David says concerning him, and then he quotes verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16. So David, get this, David is talking about Jesus. It is Jesus who said in verse 25, I saw the Lord always before me. That's what Jesus said. David thought it was of himself, but he also knew there would be a future fulfillment. Peter's now helping interpret this for us today so that we could say, David is saying this about Jesus, meaning it is Jesus who is saying, I saw the Lord always before me. In fact, in the Hebrew language of Psalm 16, this is Christ speaking to Yahweh. Yahweh is always before Jesus. Jesus is saying, Yahweh is always at my right hand, meaning He is my helper. Yahweh will not let me be shaken. Jesus was even glad in his suffering. Jesus rejoiced and found hope in his God. And here's the real key. Jesus will not be abandoned to Hades. God will not abandon his soul to Hades. You might know that Hades in the New Testament is really the equivalent of the Old Testament word sheol, S-H-E-O-L, sheol, so it can be sometimes confusing because Sheol or Hades you might think only refers to hell like it does in Matthew 11:23 but Peter uses it here in this context in its more general sense simply to refer to the place of the dead. So when he says he will not abandon his soul to Hades he's not saying that Jesus literally spent the 3 days and 3 nights in hell. That's what some people teach. I don't believe the Bible teaches that, but rather he's saying that Jesus will not stay in the grave or in the place of the dead. This verse is saying that Jesus had great confidence that he would not be abandoned in his death. And not only that, but the passage says here that the Holy One, which is a title referencing Jesus himself, will not undergo decay or see corruption. So the thought is brought up, well, did Jesus' body decay at all? He was dead for three days and three nights. We know that Lazarus, when he was in the tomb for four days, his body was putrid and it stunk. And some ask the question, do you think the flesh of Jesus deteriorated at all? I don't have an answer to that question. I think this reference is more talking about in a ongoing way because we know that he was raised up. So certainly he didn't stay in the grave more than the three days and the three nights. And so he was resurrected. I don't know that we can speak to the fact if there was any decay, we know that there was aloe and other uh, spices that were used of Joseph of Arimathea Nicodemus to treat his body so that it wouldn't decay. But I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's just simply talking about he's not going to stay in the grave forever. He will be resurrected. His body will not be here because we know that Jesus is a resurrected Savior. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four through 57, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of the sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're simply saying, if Jesus was raised from the dead, that assures you your resurrection, that you will not be under decay forever either because of the resurrection of Christ, you too will be resurrected in a glorified body. Now, when we die, I do think our body decays, but I'm just saying for us, it'll come later in our bodily resurrection. For Jesus, it came in just three days. And then in verse 28, we read, you have made known to me, the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Again, I just think it's amazing that David is writing this Psalm, but it's Peter interpreting the Psalm by the Holy Spirit to say that this is concerning Jesus. So this is now Jesus speaking to his father, saying, you have made known to me the path of life. And you might be saying, well, doesn't Jesus, if he's omniscient, already know the path of life? And the answer is yes, But still in his humanity, while he was on earth, he would say, I do only what the father tells me to do. And whatever my father does, that's what I do. Because in Jesus's humanity, he's serving as an example to you and me. In Jesus's divinity, he's powerful, but in his humanity, he's still showing us how God is revealing in a human sense, like Jesus grew in stature and wisdom in that sense. He still is looking to God to make known to him the path of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence And it was God the Father who made his plan known to the Son. It was God the Father who makes his plans known to us and reveals his plans to us through his word. God's God's path, by the way, when it says you make known to me the path of life, that's the Bible. You know, people read that Psalm 16, first of all, they don't know the context, so they just read it. As if David is saying that about himself, but he's actually speaking about Jesus, saying that to the Father, about the crucifixion. And yet in principle, we can still say, hey, you make known to me the path of life, but he makes that known through the scripture, through his word. And the path of life is that you would be redeemed. The path of life is that you would be sanctified. The path of life is that you would walk in God's truth and walk in his holiness. And part of the way that you do that is that you have to be in the presence of God. If you want to have this same gladness and this same joy, you got to be in the word of God day in and day out. And then Peter continues his sermon further when, he, when, when the next blank there says Peter interpreted the text. He interpreted the text, verses 29. So he preached it, verses uh, 25 through 28. And now he's going to interpret it, verse 29 through 31, when he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he should never let one of his descendants on his throne, that he should set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw And spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So at this point, verse 29. Throughout, through Peter and the disciples, they may have probably moved from the upper room where there was the original loud rushing sound and the tongues of fire appearing. Then there's a multitude that we just read about. A multitude came and now they're declaring at this point they've likely moved from the upper room to the southern steps of the temple mount. Now, if you've been to Israel, They've been excavating for years the southern steps of the Temple Mount. It's a beautiful area there on the south side of the temple where you could see where they would come up those steps with reciting the Psalms of ascents and coming in to worship in the temple. And it's thought that that's likely where Peter was and where he's standing. He would have easily been able to locate the tomb of David. And David's tomb is thought by tradition to be there in the city of David, which would have been in eyeshot from where Peter is preaching this very sermon. So when Peter's preaching from Acts 16, he's like, this psalm is not about David. It's about the risen Christ because David is still in his tomb to this day. And he could have even pointed over at the area where David's tomb was where people would have visited that tomb. People would have known where the king was buried. They would have probably paid homage to that tomb. And, and, and Peter's now saying, look, don't worry about David's tomb. I'm talking about Jesus Christ. This, this Psalm 16 couldn't be talking about David because he's still in the grave. But this Psalm, is Psalm 16 is talking about Christ because he's been bodily resurrected. I just think that's awesome to understand that a little bit better. And verses 30, 31 say, uh, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about the Davidic covenant. The fact that God would make a promise to David that his descendant would sit on his throne forever. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter seven. That's what he's talking about here in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So again, Peter's saying that David knew both from Psalm 16 And now from this oath that God made to him, which is a reference to the Davidic covenant. Again, maybe you're there now. 2 Samuel 7, 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. So this is God speaking through the prophet to David, his son, and he says that the Lord, that's Yahweh, will make you, David, a house, but notice where this goes. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, so David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he's telling David, you're going to have a son who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son, who's going to have a son, whose name is Jesus and his kingdom will know no end. And I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Now in this Davidic covenant, he starts to talk about Solomon because look at the middle of verse 14, when he commits iniquity, did Christ ever commit iniquity? No, he did not. And so that's why the Davidic covenant is partially fulfilled by Solomon and it's fully fulfilled by, By the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking about Solomon when he says, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Remember, Solomon intermarried with other women outside of the faith, and so it ended up to come back and bite him. And so he says he would discipline him uh, because of that with the rod of the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And in verse 16, he goes back to the ultimate son of David, who's not Solomon, but Jesus, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Well, Solomon's kingdom's not forever. David's kingdom's not forever. So that's why now we're talking again about Christ, whose kingdom will be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And so some of this prophecy again was fulfilled by Solomon, but the ultimate prophecy is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. His throne is established forever. His kingdom will know no end. And again, Jesus was not abandoned to the place of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was raised up one more place this was prophesied, maybe just in connection with the concept, would be Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two, again, Peter doesn't reference Psalm two, but conceptually, I think it's still there. Psalm two, verse two, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel so again all these prophecies that are saying yes jesus will be crucified yes jesus will be raised from the dead and if jesus has been raised from the dead and if he's reigning on his throne then that means again that we get the same inheritance we get to be resurrected The worst fear that you could have in life might be death, but in Christ, you can say, yeah, but I'll be resurrected. Just like Christ was, the the worst thing that could happen in life would be bondage to your sin. You know, we, we fear oftentimes health concerns, problems with relationships, problems with the government, problems with whatever. Look, the worst enemy you'll face in this life is your own sin. It's being enslaved to your sin. That's your biggest enemy. And because of the resurrection, you're already free from it. You're free from enslavement to pornography. You're free from enslavement to desiring more money, the love of money that's the root of evil. You're free from the status that you desire in life, having wanting a certain status, because the resurrection set us free. We're free because of Christ's resurrection. And Peter applies, your next blank says, Peter applied the passage in verses 42 to 47. We don't have time to go there because that's next week's sermon. But basically we're gonna see how Peter then brings about the full ending after he preaches his sermon. He then gives an application to the passage that we'll look at actually in a couple of weeks. So what do we got this morning? Peter preached Christ, we've seen that. Peter preached from the Old Testament, we've seen that. And then last this morning, Peter preached the Holy Trinity. He preached the Holy Trinity. Your next blank says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just quickly here, verse 32 says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is, while Peter doesn't use the word Trinity, there's certainly a triune focus and emphasis, particularly to these two verses, verses 32 and 33. The, the Trinity is clearly seen in this passage as he talks about in verse 32. There he says that there's God, uh, that God raised him up. So that's a reference to God, the father. We're already referenced Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And then in verse 33, that he raised him up and he delivered the promise of the Holy Spirit. So there we see a clear trinity to what Peter's saying. If God's involved, Christ was raised, he's exalted, he's at the right hand of God, that's showing that Jesus is on par with God, that he is of the same essence of God, of the same authority of, of God, that, they have, that, that, that that there's three, three persons in the trinity, the Father, the Son, and, the, and the, then the promise of the Holy Spirit is poured out that you're seeing. So part of what he's saying at Pentecost, remember, what is this, the Holy Spirit? Oh, well, you know about the Father, I've been declaring to you the Son, and now here we are at Pentecost, now you're seeing the Holy Spirit. This is like the Holy Spirit day, the birthday of the church where the Spirit now fills every true believer. And so there we see an application in a sense of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then your next blank says, David knew about the second person of the Trinity. David knew about Christ, the second person of the Trinity. We've already seen that, but in verses 34 and 35, for David did not ascend into the heavens but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So one more time, Peter quotes David, diving back into the Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's just proving his point one last time here. He said, hey, you remember when David said this? He wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the greater David, who's the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Again, from Psalm 110 verse 1, where David said this, this is basically what he's saying. Yahweh, so the first word Lord there is the word Yahweh. If you went back and studied the Hebrew from Psalm 110, Yahweh said to my Lord. So Yahweh said to that second word Lord is the word Adonai. So Yahweh, God, the father says to Adonai, which could be a more general reference, not only to the father, but in this case, this Adonai master referring to the son. So the father said to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your footstool. So he's clarifying again, this is not David that's somehow sitting there at the right hand of God. This is God, the father speaking to God, the son. This is not David who's ascended to heaven, but Christ and God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. To place your enemies under your feet is describing the fact that they must submit to you, that you are in complete authority over your enemies and they are under your complete control and submission. So David was not exalted to this status, but Jesus was. And so the proof of this taking place in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is what is being witnessed that everybody saw. This is proof that this is what has happened because of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus had been telling him about the Holy Spirit, and now at Pentecost, it is evident that this is what has happened. Listen, if you need evidence about God the Father, look at creation. If you need evidence about God the Son, look to the resurrection. If you need evidence about the Holy Spirit, look to Pentecost. Pentecost. This is the greatest evidence of the outpouring of the Spirit that we see clearly here on this day of Pentecost. One last thing. Our sin made the crucifixion necessary. Verse 36, here in Peter's sermon, as we emphasize how he's preaching Christ, verse 36, and we're done, says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that would be Jesus, both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says, let everyone know for certain. This means that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt. This word certain here means securely or absolutely. This truth is undeniable the same Jesus that God attested to, the same Jesus that did the mighty works and wonders and the signs, the same Jesus that David talked about, the same Jesus that has been raised from the dead, the same Jesus that has been exalted at the right hand of God, this Jesus whom God has made both Lord and Christ, Jesus is the master and the Messiah, this Jesus you crucified. And so he's saying the verdict is in the house of Israel had killed God's son. The Jews had handed Jesus over to the Gentiles to be crucified. As Peter later put it in Acts 4, 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders that has become the cornerstone. But I've got news for you this morning. The Jews are not the only ones who rejected Jesus. In a sense, each one of us prior to your transformation, rejected Jesus. Each one of us in our depravity and because of our sin, you understand it was because of your sin and because of my sin that Jesus went to the cross. It was my sin that held him there. And you've got to be able to see that this morning that you and I, in a sense, are just as responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And if you don't get that, then you don't get your own depravity. You don't really understand your own sin because you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're doomed. But because of Christ, we can be delivered from our doom And we can have a destiny in heaven with Christ forever. And that's the good news. That's why we live. That's the gospel. That Jesus didn't stay on the cross, but that he was raised from the dead. And that he's alive today. And that he has sent his spirit to regenerate us and to dwell inside of us. Because we've been redeemed by his blood. And so let me just ask you this morning, have you come to Christ Have you come to that point in your life where you realize, you know what, my sin is responsible for Christ's death. Christ had to come and die on a cross because I'm a sinner and because he loves me and he desires to save me through me repenting and believing in him. If you're a Christian today, are you walking in these truths? Are you seeing the beauty of the power of preaching? I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about Peter just standing up and just preaching it. He's pulling stuff out of Joel 2. He's pulling stuff out of Psalm 16, Psalm 110, likely referencing to Psalm 2. That's what a preacher does. And that's why Peter's preaching with authority. That's why this pulpit will try to model itself after expository preaching. And that's why every Sunday I'll call you to Christ and just say today, come, O sinner, and see the beauty of the Savior. Come and see for yourself this Jesus of Nazareth. And so if God is tugging at your heart today. I encourage you after we sing our last song that you would come up. We have a few people who will be standing up here. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you about what God's doing in your heart and in your life this very day. Pray with me, if you will, as we close. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Psalm Psalm 16 that we've seen preached here in Acts 2. Thank you for the joy of just seeing a lot of uh, things being pulled together in Peter's magnificent sermon, as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to take and explain passages of scripture, all for the purpose of pointing to Christ, to point to Jesus, that we would see that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He was recognizable. He was rejected, but we know that he was resurrected. And we're just so thankful today that we're able to see and learn these things and to be fired up in our own hearts about the power of the resurrection. God preach to us through your word and preach to us through the apostle Peter and preach to us through faithful men throughout church history, even up to this day, that would help us see and understand more clearly. And yet we know it's your Holy Spirit that truly enlightens our mind so that we can understand and that you would apply your word and your truth in our hearts that we would forever be changed. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.